The Wainwright Prize, the stories behind the books, brought to you by PlanetPod. Welcome to this special edition of Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, celebrating the 2020 Wainwright Prize in which we bring you the stories behind the books through interviews with this year's shortlisted authors. Now in its seventh year, the Wainwright Prize for UK Nature Writing is awarded annually to the book which most successfully inspires readers to explore the outdoors and to nurture a respect for the natural world. The prize was founded in memory of Alfred Wainwright by Francis Lincoln, who published the iconic Pictorial Guides to the Lakeland Fells. There's a strong link between walking and writing, whether it's striding out across fells or meandering through woodland, the very act of walking seems to unlock and release creativity. What better way to celebrate and commemorate that most famous of walkers than through this prize? This year's prize has been extended to include a second category for books about global conservation and climate change. And the two shortlists reflect the breadth and range of contemporary nature writing, both in the UK and around the world. Cytopia by Carolyn Steele explores the complex relationship we have with food. We live in a world shaped by food, a cytopia, citos, food, topos, place. Food and how we search for and consume it has defined our human journey. Our modern approach to food, its production and consumption, has allowed us to forget its true value and drift into a way of life that threatens both the planet and ourselves. Carolyn, welcome to Planet Pod and thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Well, obviously, food is a huge topic and one you've addressed before in your book, Hungry City. So I'm curious as to know how this particular book came about and what sparked you to write it, really. Yes, well, um, the the previous book brought it about, to be honest, um, because in Hungry City, I was writing about how cities, what it takes to feed a city, basically. Um, I should probably explain I'm an architect by training. um, And I came to food as a way of trying to introduce, I guess, human life into the architectural discourse, because architects had this terrible tendency to talk endlessly about buildings, which is all very fascinating. But, you know, in a, in a sense, the whole point of buildings is that we live in them and we inhabit them. So I was really trying to inject that kind of sense into the architectural discourse, as I say. Um, about 20 years ago, I had the idea of writing about cities through the lens of food and literally asking the question, how do you feed a city? Which turned out to be quite a large Question indeed, you know, you might almost say the question that sort of says, what is urban civilization? Um, and I immediately thought, well, I'm not remotely qualified to do this, but it was so fascinating, I couldn't really stop myself. Um, and within, within about a week, I had the structure of the book, which was a journey of food through the city. Um, and in the final chapter of that book, I was, I mean, by then I'd been working on it for about seven years, thinking about how how you know how food shapes our lives to put it to put it bluntly you know not just our cities and our landscapes but our societies our economy our bodies you know our relationship with nature and in the final chapter I was looking for a way of summoning up everything I guess I'd learned um about this absolutely vast subject and I was researching utopia because um actually food comes up a lot in utopia you know utopians write a lot about Food. They're obsessed with it. I mean, most utopias were written in the pre-industrial world and, you know, they're all about how do we, you know, keep this going and feed ourselves and share labour and so on. Um, and I read in the introduction to my edition of Thomas More's Utopia, 
um, that utopia is a kind of joke word. It can either mean a good place or no place. And I found this profoundly depressing because in a way, utopia is our strongest tradition of thinking in a multidisciplinary way about how we should live, uh, but it can't exist. <laughs> so I remember feeling very flawed by this and then thinking, but actually, you know, I've spent the last six or seven years now researching how food shapes our lives. So maybe we can use food as a kind of alternative to utopia. Uh, you can see where this is heading. <laughs> I, I rang some, uh, as it were, ancient Greek friends of mine. Well, not actually ancient Greek friends, but friends who are sort of experts in ancient Greek and sort of asked them, I said, you know, if you, uh, if you wanted a word meaning food place in the ancient uh, Greek world, what would it have been? And they said, well, sitos, S-I-T-O-S is the Greek for food, and topos is, means place. So the correct Greek word would have been sitotopia. But since that sounds ridiculous, no Greek would have been crazy enough to have a word like that. So you, why don't you just call it sitopia? So that's how I came up with the word. And in fact, the last chapter of Hungry City is called sitopia. And I was basically saying, look, you know, we can't live in utopia, but we do live in a sitopia. We just live in a bad one because we don't value food and food shapes our lives more profoundly than anything else in the world. So if we start, learn to see the world through food-shaped glasses, as it were, um, then we have an amazingly powerful, multidisciplinary, omnivalent uh, common tool for shaping the world better. And that, that was kind of the summary of Hungry City. Uh, and I wrote that in 2008. <laughs> and... Um, well, you know, then people read the book and they started coming back at me with questions and, you know, the conversation carried on and carried on. And I think about two years after that, well, in fact, I know exactly where I was. I was actually sitting in a theatre in Amsterdam being interviewed about the Dutch version of Hungry City by a series of incredibly intelligent journalists asking me these amazing questions. And it was during that day of interviews that I realised I was going to have to write another book to actually say, okay, how do we do this? You know, how do we use the lens of food to shape the world better? Uh, and that is what led to the writing of, of Zootopia. That's wonderful that your kind of manifesto just emerged from book one into book two. And I'm, I'm, I hesitate to ask you if you've left us with a cliffhanger for, for another book at the end of this one. But, but, <laughs> but you're right, it's such a touchstone. It's such a sort of evocative subject food isn't it but it touches every part of our lives and I think that one of the things that it does is it divides communities as much as it unites them mm. um, and and I think that you know what we've, sh what we've we've learned perhaps from this recent experience of the pandemic is that that those who are originally marginalized only need the slightest bit of disruption to be more marginalized and one yes. of the biggest indicators of that is food and lack of access to food quality yes. food or even food at all you know with food poverty on the rise so so it's an enormous political subject oh, yeah. have you found yourself being pulled into a political discourse during the book or as a result of, of the book um have I left us on another quick cliffhanger I mean if 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 the final chapter of Hungry City led on to this book then the final chapter of Zootopia is called Time and actually the bit I'm going to read you later is from that final chapter and I I would love to explore the question of time more because I think it is an element of the way we think that's kind of missing. And, and to rejig our relationship with time is one of the things that I think we need to do. And food led me to that. Have, has food dragged me into political way of thinking? I think um, I'd almost put it on its head in the reverse way. I'd almost say that I've always been political in the way that I think. 
And I think food has given me a tool for actually understanding how people like me who don't have a training in PPE and all the rest of it, or didn't study philosophy, can nevertheless engage in the big questions. And I think that is its great, great gift. And that's why, you know, I'm here sitting talking to you now rather than designing gutter details in the office, you know. <laughs> um, it's, it's an incredibly powerful tool because we, we all eat, but literally in that plate of food is the world. You know, and I often say that, you know, a plate of food is an emissary from a, from a landscape far away. You know, it's, it's, it consists of living things. Here's another sort of way of thinking that, that just highlights how deeply, deeply political it is. Food consists of living things that we kill so we can live. You know, and when you put it like that, you realise, OK, this thing is political, it's ecological, it's to do with value. It's, it's literally life. It's a metaphor for life that's so close to life that you may as well call it life. And again, that's its great value because um, if you sort of say to somebody, what's a good life? That's a fantastically abstract sounding question. And people probably immediately have visions of sitting on a beach somewhere, sipping pina coladas. You know, it sort of doesn't really get to the numb. But if you ask the question, what is good food? then that's very, very material and understandable because we all eat every day. You know, we can see food as a physical thing. But actually, when you really get into the nitty gritty of it, which is essentially what I do in the book, um, you can see that the questions are virtually identical. Because as you say, you know, I mean, my metaphor for a good society is one in which everybody eats well. Um, and it's very, very interesting that we're very good at sharing food. In fact, we evolved, you know, as hunter-gatherers through the shared the shared problem of how to eat. And I often say that the shared meal is the earliest and still the best economy we've ever invented. Because if you imagine people sitting around a table, you know, and we all do this. I mean, that's the other thing I love about food is it's, it's you know, the shared meal is the greatest ritual, the most profound ritual that we still all engage in. You know, nobody leans forward and says, thank you very much. You know, I'll, I'll have all the pies myself. You know, nobody does that. You know, we all hand out the food first. It's how we learn to be civilized, is how to share and make sure everybody has enough to eat. Now, if you think that instead of a table full of food, you've got an economy full of money and bankers kind of shaving percentages off every exchange, it's literally the opposite. Literally what people do is lean across the table and say, thank you very much, I'll have all that for myself. And it's even bound into our idea of a good life, that to be rich is a good thing, you know. So one of the big arguments I'm making in the book is that we have to put the value back in food because actually food is the most valuable thing in our lives that we have to, you know, physically create. And, and so that's where the sort of the true spirit of sharing lies. And if we do that, um, then everything else falls into place. And yes, absolutely. As you say, during COVID, I'm coming on to your third question, I think, um, during COVID um, we've seen, two aspects of food, well, no, many, many aspects of food, but two key sort of camps of, of aspect, as it were, one positive and one negative. So the positive one has obviously been the narrative about people under lockdown thinking, well, I've got to cook, you know, three times a day and may as well enjoy it, you know, and actually rediscovering the joy of taking time and trouble over food, which they probably didn't have time to do before. You know, all these stories about people getting baking for their neighbours and getting into sourdough and eating with the kids. So that's been really, really fantastic. And also, you know, a whole set of new relationships that have been made directly between producers and consumers. On the other hand, of course, is the aspect that you mentioned, which is that 
we have a, a, a horribly large number of people living in very precarious circumstances, even in the UK, you know, the fifth largest economy in the world. And of course, you know, the COVID has just highlighted that and the use of food banks has shot up and all the rest of it. I mean, my, again, my, my vision is that if we need to create a society in which everybody eats well, um, and that not only means, you know, the, the rich people who can afford the sourdough, but absolutely everybody. And, but I'm also arguing that food, the inherent cost of food should be internalized, as you know, which is where, if you like, it gets most ecological, if you like. Um, and therefore, we can't have a society in which people are paid below the living wage. You know, so I'm arguing for a more equal society, but from, from the other way up, from, from the point of view of the, the, the sort of the ability to eat well should be a fundamental human right. Yeah, but, but, but as you say, food is, is political in the sense that there are um, all sorts of factors that we can't control. We can control what we eat in our daily lives if we're lucky enough to be able to afford ingredients and, eat, and be able to cook and eat with our families. But we can't control production. We can't control um, manufacturing. We can't control um, all of those big mega systems, if you like. Um, how, how can we as citizens shift that dynamic i mean you talk about you know cytopian economics and you talk about you know having a, a new sort of moral code and i think that's actually right and uh, but how can we as citizens shift some of that because the very beginning of your book you 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 describe the the artificial burger you know what a horrific thought um but but how, how how we can we engage in this debate and what can we do as citizens to shift that some of that that power yeah. balance I mean, the, the really wonderful thing about food, apart from the fact that it's delicious, <laughs> um, is that we can all make a difference. This is what I absolutely love about it. Everybody listening to this podcast can literally decide, okay, I'm never going to eat industrially produced meat again, for example. Because I mean, that's one of the, the things that emerges as, and I think we all know this, that emerges as one of the most ecologically damaging, uh, as well as cruel and frankly, morally unacceptable uh, ways of producing food that we have. It, the problem, of course, is that we've built, you know, for 200 years now, post-industrialization, we've built this, our entire society around the idea that there can be such a thing as cheap food. And there isn't, there cannot be. I mean, as previously stated, food consists of living things that we kill so we can live. If you cheapen food, you cheapen life. It's literally that straightforward. So we can inform ourselves about food. I mean, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, if you live in a Tesco town where basically the six Tescos and that's kind of it, it's difficult. But if you start to think about it, there's loads and loads of things you can do. You can eat less meat and dairy, which we all need to be doing anyway. You can try to avoid processed food. You can try to make time to cook for yourself. You can take part in an organic box scheme or you can you know, take, join a CSA, a community-supported agriculture farm, where you basically pay the farm in advance and maybe go and even help out on the farm. If you can't afford to do that, you can still go to your local markets. I mean, there are local markets everywhere where there's good food being sold directly by the producers, or you can get an allotment and, and grow your own food. Every county in the world, uh, in, in the UK, has a duty to, to provide you with an allotment of space to grow food. So, and many, many people do that. In fact, it's another thing under COVID that's absolutely surged as people's interest in growing their own food. I actually grow my own food. Funnily enough, I spent all of yesterday pickling this year's crop of Danish pickling cucumbers that I grow on my roof in my flat here in London. I produce, well, this year it's probably going to be a, a smaller crop, but on average 10 kilos of enormous Danish pickling cucumbers, 
on a tiny little roof that you know on the way up to my flat in central London you know so but also it's just I mean good food doesn't have to cost a lot I mean if you eat mainly vegetables and pulses and so on and just have a little bit of meat or fish you know as a kind of flavor enhancer rather than expecting it to be the major lump of stuff on your plate a you're going to be healthier and b your costs are going to shoot down you know so I mean, I think just understanding that every time you eat, it is a political act and it's an ecological act and it's an ethical act and it's a social act and a cultural act. I mean, everything, everything comes from it. There's infinite amounts we can do as, as sort of individuals. And we can then sort of, you know, as, as communities, we can join all of these kinds of schemes. I'm talking about a community, you know, they're, they're sort of social. They're about linking together through food. But we're also voters and we're lucky enough to live in a democracy. So we can also lobby our MPs and our government to, for example, I mean, I do this all the time. I mean, I spend half my day kind of writing to my MP saying, please, will you support, you know, the next vote in the agriculture bill that's going to preserve high level standards of food production in the UK? And please, can we not have chlorinated chicken? You know, so, so we live in a democracy and and if you understand, as I've come to understand, that, you know, if, if I'm holding my hand up now, I realise this is only oral, but, you know, if, if your hand represents the food system on the one hand and your other hand represents society, then in a democracy, in any kind of society, they mirror one another. So in a democracy, you can't have a monopolistic food system because it's absolutely antithetical because food sovereignty is key to sovereignty. We, we need control over what we eat. And the very fact that you're sitting there saying, oh, of course, we can't control the food system really just highlights the problem. Why can't we? We live in a democracy. You know, we live in a free society. This is insanity. We need to demand that we do control what we eat. You know, and that's, again, the, the, the degree to which, you know, food always becomes political. I mean, it, it, it's inherently political. I'm very keen on the idea that actually we, we start to get politicised about the fact that the, the food system as a whole is so contrary to so many of the stated aims, you know, of, of the government in terms of climate change and all the rest of it. Uh, we just have to start getting a bit antsy and speaking up about it, frankly. We definitely do. And I mean, I think we would wholly agree with you on on, on Planet Pod and we've had many guests who've, who covered this subject you know from food waste and the appalling food waste in terms of manufacturing right through to you know the disparity in income and that's one of the keys isn't it because you know if you can only afford to purchase from your big local supermarket yeah by definition so often the poorest quality food is the food that you can afford and that's the one that's the heaviest and salts and fats and all the things you don't want not to mention the imports of chlorinated chicken which you know do seem to be coming our way though we're doing our best to assist them so so it is a it, it is a it is intensely political but it also has a kind of social aspect in terms of of, of poverty and one's ability to pay but of course we should be campaigning about this stuff and the book is clearly a manifesto in that sense and a, and a demand for for action I, i'm in, i'm intrigued just as to how um how much time you get to do the main day job to be an architect alongside the writing because it's this is a, clearly a huge passion of yours and, and must take quite a lot of your time so is that a struggle to balance those two aspects of your life and I see from what you've been saying that they're interwoven but how on earth do you get time to write the books as well as designing the guttering well it's actually the other way around I haven't I haven't darkened the threshold of my architect's practice in 15 years because I can't do both 
Uh, but interestingly, the and, and in fact, Zootopia took eight years to write full time uh, because it is an absolutely enormous subject. Because I should also probably explain that it came from a drawing I did, which is no point in me showing you because this is only oral. But anyway, I was, I was trying to work out around about the time, going back to your first question, how, how did I come to write the book? Around about the time I was being interviewed by all these amazing Dutch journalists, I was trying to work out for myself where food sits in our lives. And being an architect, I grabbed a bit of paper and I started drawing and I drew a plate of food and then I drew a table around the plate and then people around the table and I started drawing arrows saying connection, sharing, family, etc. And then a cook figure and I kind of wrote nurturing, you know, looking after and then maybe gratitude coming the other way. And then a market space, you know, so between the cook and the market, the cook bought the food from somewhere, you know, economy, trust, uh, knowledge and so on. And then the market sat in the city and the city sat in the countryside and the countryside sat in nature, as it were, in inverted commas. And, and that all sat in the universe. But, you know, so the thing is, in my head, in my architecty weird head, food sits at the centre of everything. You know, it is at the centre of our world. We're made of it. We literally consist of all the meals we've eaten in our lives. And the food we eat now will, will create the future us. I mean, it just couldn't be more profound. And it's central to our, our, our identity, our happiness, our sense of home, the way we share, you know, the way we inhabit land, our relationship with nature, and ultimately, of course, the final chapter, our relationship with time. You know, so that, that if you like, a section through that drawing is the structure of the book. So that's very architecty. But I mean, interestingly, I mean, and no, I, I wrote it full time. I mean, I, I it, you know, I had to, as it were, research everything from the structure of the brain to the structure of soil to, you know, relativity. I mean, you know, and, and why, why cows that eat grass are better for you than cows that eat grain and why great, you know, blah, blah. I mean, it's just completely ludicrously enormous subject. Um, so no, I haven't been in the office, but, but interestingly, I'm going back now because people are now asking me to say, okay, well, what does Cytopia look like? And in fact, I've just got a research fellowship in the Netherlands this in, in the coming year, and I'm going to be researching. Okay. I mean, I write in the book about the need to maximize what I call the urban rural interface, um, which comes from our duality as humans that, we, you know, we need society on the one hand, but we also need nature. So how do we bring those two things together? And I've come up with this idea that we need to, as I say, the ideal habitat for a, a political animal, to use Aristotle's term, is to have one foot in the city and one foot in the countryside. So it's about how do you make that happen? And I've, I've, for me, it happens at every scale. So it's at the scale of me, somebody like me growing cucumbers on their roof. It's at the scale of you know having community gardens in housing estates, it's to do with the city's relationship with its region and so on and so on. So it's, it's almost an idea that's a bit like a fractal and it's relevant at every scale. Um, so to that extent, I'm about to become a bit of an architect again, but I've never stopped being one because I think like an architect, you know, and I think that's why I've ended up writing the book I've written. It's wonderful. And I have this fabulous vision of you creating the next living utopia for us, which comes out of Zootopia, the book itself. And I know you've got a short extract you kindly said you'd read. So, so would you be able to do that just to give listeners a flavour of the book? And then obviously they will be rushing, rushing out to buy a copy <laughs> as it should be mandatory reading for all politicians and all policy oh, that, planners. That would be wonderful. Um, I mean, I should explain that what I'm going to read is 
three of the last four paragraphs of the book. Uh, and I can't read you the last four because that's over a page long. But so it's a sort of summing up of everything I've been saying in the book. So I'm taking a few things for granted. I've talked about home. I've talked about society. I've talked about what Zootopia is. And I'm now in this chapter talking about our relationship with time and the fact that we need to slow down and learn to live in time again. So that's all the stuff that you would have already read if you'd read the book by the time you read this. Nothing else combines the cosmic and domestic aspects of our life as powerfully as food. As the rhythm of our daily lives and the embodiment of life and death, food epitomizes the dual meaning of mundane, a word that we use to mean boring, humdrum or everyday, yet whose deeper root is worldly, cosmic, of the universe, from the Latin mundus. Few words express our cosmic disconnectedness so powerfully. The clue lies in the fact that our planet Earth and the living Earth that sustains us bear the same name. It reminds us that the edible stuff that we chew will pour unthinkingly down our gullets, the living things that we don't value and can't be bothered to think about, the substance that shapes our world and without which we wouldn't exist, this stuff called food, can reconcile us with time. Food's unique potential to heal us stems from the profound relationship that it represents between us and our world. The fact that we're blind to its power is due to our having forgotten what it really is. By learning to see food and to see the world through it, we can find our true place in the natural order again. By valuing what we eat and knowing what it is, we can reconnect ourselves to each other and to our world. This is the true meaning of Cytopia, using food to understand what it means to be human and how to coexist with our fellow humans and non-humans through time. By eating together consciously, we can be both grounded and transported, connected to a greater order of things. We can exist for a period both inside and outside time, and we can feel profoundly at home. There are no easy answers to our human dilemma, yet no matter what obstacles lie ahead, food can be our guide. None of us existed before food. It preceded us, anticipates us, sustains us, and will outlive us. The relationship that binds us to those we love and to our living world is, in the end, our greatest hope. Carolyn, thank you. I mean, that was a, a fabulous extract and also I think serves as a great kind of call to action for listeners. And I would say that everybody needs to buy your book and read it because it's a, a manifesto for life and a way forward. So thank you so much for joining. It's been an absolute delight um, discussing Zootopia with you. Thank you so much. Great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Planet Pod in partnership with the Wainwright Prize. Zootopia by Carolyn Steele is published by Chateau and Windus, and you can find details of it and all of the other shortlisted books on the Wainwright Prize website, along with extracts. Or visit our website, theplanetpod.com, where you can catch up on interviews with other authors and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to the stories behind the books, the Planet Pod series on the Wainwright Prize 2020. You can find details of all the shortlisted authors on the Wainwright Prize website or on our Planet Pod website. Do look them up and find out more. Thanks for listening.